Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. But I wanted to start out. I don't know if you heard Pete Buttigieg, uh, whether it's Buddha Judge or Boot Edge Edge. I guess it's Boot Edge Edge. That's what that's what they were prompting the crowd in his opening speech. One of the things that I thought was really important in his speech is that He's reclaiming Christianity, among other things. I mean, he's, he's reclaiming a lot of stuff, but this is, I think, one of the most important. And it wasn't just in his speech. I mean, you know, he's been in this little feud here with Mike Pence for about a week now. And I'm like, hey, about time. You know, Jesus was a liberal. I mean, not just a liberal. He was not just a socialist. He was a communist. He was as left as you can get, right? The purse was held communally. Uh, one guy held it, Judas, but his job was to take everybody's stuff and pool it together and, you know, buy things that everybody needed from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. It's like, you know, Jesus was the original Marxist. But we don't need to, you know, go quite that far. I mean, we could just point out that in Matthew 25, Jesus said, basically, this is the one time in the Bible where the disciples came to him and said, how do we get into heaven? And he said, you know, feed the hungry. Heal the sick. Welcome the stranger. I'm not seeing this happening in Mike Pence's world. Right? And Pete Buttigieg is pointing that out. Here's the problem. And this is a real problem for the Republican Party. And it has been for the better part of 40 or 50 years. Is they literally have nothing to run on. They have literally no, quote, ideas. You know, Paul Ryan was supposed to be the smartest guy in town. You know, he lifted weights and he was really brilliant, good with numbers. What were his ideas? Oh, that's right. Cut taxes by 1.5 trillion, 1.9 actually trillion dollars. Borrow that money from our grandchildren and give it to rich people. That worked out real well. But basically, I mean, this is it. And the American people have figured out that the, the GOP tax scam is, was just that. It was a tax scam. So the question, I guess, for the hour, is Mike Pence a Christian? For that matter, is Franklin Graham Jr. a Christian? Is Jerry Falwell Jr. a Christian? I look at their behavior. By their works they shall be known, remember? 
I look at that behavior and I have to say, one of the things about being a Christian is not judging other people, but that said, I can't categorically say that they're not Christians, but I can say that it sure doesn't look like they're followers of Jesus, at least you know, in that behavior, which raises some interesting issues about religion in the public square. There's this right-wing movement, this Project Blitz that's going on right now, as we speak, where fundamentalist Christians have come up with these uh, twin lies, these two lies, that they are literally putting into legislation in state after state after state. The most recent was uh, Texas's Senate Bill 17, anti-gay legislation. It basically says uh, not just stores can discriminate, but anybody who has a license, a pharmacist, a doctor, a lawyer, anybody with a license can discriminate against gay people or, or any, anybody on that spectrum, anybody who's not just totally, you know, cisgendered. If they hold, quote, a sincerely held religious belief. Get that? The two lies that these guys are promoting are, number one, and they're using David Talbot to do this, uh, who's a guy who literally makes up quotes from people like Thomas Jefferson to say that America is a Christian nation. He's a, he's a, a hustler, a phony baloney hustler. He used to be on the Glenn Beck show all the time. Totally discredited. The first lie is that America was founded in Christianity, that America is a Christian nation. That is, that is an egregious lie. And then the second lie is that the fundamental, the, the foundational core concept of Christianity is bigotry, is discriminating against people, is hating people, hating people because of their sexuality, hating pe people because of their gender, hating people because of their, or because of their gender identity, hating people because of their religion. And this is all these guys have. Right? This is all the Republican Party has. This is why a video of Ilan Omar and 9-11 is pinned at the top of, of Donald Trump's Twitter feed. Because all they have is bigotry. And they're calling it Christianity. And they're, and they're running on this. Mike Pence is running on this. USA Today published a story on April 3rd titled Copy-Paste Legislate. And what they did is they looked from the period of 2010 to 2018, they looked at 10,000 pieces of legislation that were introduced in every single state. This two-year joint investigation between the Center for Public Integrity and the Arizona Republic newspapers. And what they found was that 4,300 of those 10,000 bills were actually written by corporations. And another 4,012 of them were written by conservative groups, and most of the conservative groups were religious, or at least claimed religion in order to get a tax exemption. But really, they were bigot laws. They were, they were laws that, that sought to, to minimize the rights and privileges in our society of people that the Christians don't like. Rachel Lacer, the president of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, told Salon, Project Blitz, this is this, Project Blitz, this is this thing that all these right-wing millionaires, the, you know, the Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham and all these other guys, 
I don't know specifically if those two are involved. I'd be astonished if they weren't. But it's this, this major multi-state project to put religion into our law. One of the pieces is having the Christian history of America taught in our elementary schools. All right, we're going to teach lies in our schools. And then institutionalizing laws that allow pharmacists to, to say, you know, no, I'm sorry, I can't fill your prescription for birth control pills. It violates my religion. Or doctors saying, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't treat you, uh, your broken leg, because you're gay, and that violates my religion. It's bigotry. And they're calling this Christianity. And it's not Christianity, at least as I know it. I mean, can, do you, can you figure out any way to rationalize this? I mean, who would, who would Jesus discriminate against? Right? To the best of my knowledge, the only people in his life he ever got pissed off at were the money changers in the temple, the businessmen who were trying to make money off religion, the people who were hustling you know, you know, little animals to sacrifice in exchange for cash. I mean, you know, they were like the televangelists of their day. It was the Pat Robertsons that Jesus was seriously PO'd with. And then you look at this story, the plot against America inside the Christian rights program to remodel America. Clarkson tells Salon, the authors of the Project Blitz playbook are the savvy purveyors of dominionism, which is chillingly akin to a handmaiden's tale. They live in an imminent theocratic vision. In other words, they believe that, that the country needs to be run by God. But because God doesn't just like show up on television, they're the ones who are going to tell us what God wants. The first tier of Project Blitz is to import the, uh, the Christian nationalist worldview into public schools. Uh, the second tier aims to make government increasingly a partner in Christianizing America. And the third tier contain, contain, contains these specific proposed laws to, quote, protect religious beliefs and practices that are really are just pro-bigotry laws. In fact, they say specifically to denigrate the LGBTQ community and to defend and advance the right to discriminate. Period. Very, sim very straightforward. And they've come up with this this. this this set of lies, this, this whole false narrative. With that false identity in place, Christian nationals rationalize the freedom to discriminate as a fundamental right. This, for example, is from this law in Texas that I was talking about, Section 2. Marriage should be recognized as a union of one man and one woman. Okay, no more gay marriage. Number two, sexual relations are properly reserved to such a marriage. You can't have sex with somebody if you're not A, married, and B, straight. Or maybe we should reverse those. And then C, man and woman refer to an individual, individual's immutable biological sex as objectively, objectively determined by anatomy and genetics at time of birth. And they're calling this the Marriage Tolerance Act. I mean, it's like, not only are these guys bizarre, but they're pushing this bizarreness under the guise of compassion. I mean, this is, this is nuts. Do you think Mike Pence is a Christian? Is there any, any context in which, you know, a bigot like Mike Pence 
openly, proudly bigoted, can be considered a Christian. Victoria in Los Angeles, listening on KPFK. Hey, Victoria, what's up? Hi, this is my concern. I'm a historian. Mm-hmm. And what I've discovered over the years is, is this, is that when it, okay, religion, when the Europeans got a hold to the Bible, they took the word light to mean white, okay? This is Rome, and, and so once they declared that, that said about the precedence of white supremacy. Now, white supremacy was based on that, but it goes even deeper than that, because what you have to understand is that the Jews were very upset that the Messiah, for one, did not come from a, a wealthy family, and he was a little bit darker than what they expected. So the Jews conspired with the Rome, and so once the crucifixion took place, this man's whole family and friends were totally gotten rid of. By now, they have constructed a judicial system and a legal system that would keep them in power forever, and that is really the construct behind all of this. The reality is that there was never even anyone even named Jesus to even exist at that time because the letter J didn't exist. So you have years and years and years of this, and that's really what's behind it. If if the world found out that the Messiah, that whole situation with the Messiah was fake, and his whole crucifixion, and then they resurrected a fake European uh, Messiah, then where would Christianity be? Where would all of these people be who have constructed all of this, and how would they have power? And that's what this is about. This goes back to that very crucial point, the fact that the Messiah's identity was totally changed for monetary purposes. And then when they got a hold of the Bible, they didn't understand it, so they began to construct whatever they wanted to construct. Well, I would say Jesus was turned into a Greek god. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, the notion of the Savior that people were expecting was going to be the new king of Israel. He was going to lead his people into safety and security. He wasn't an agent of personal supernatural salvation. That was a Greek concept that had to do do with the old Greek gods, and that really went back into Zoroastrianism and things like that. But you're absolutely right, right. And, and, and and by the way, Mormonism doubled down on this. I mean, Joseph Smith in the so-called tablets, you know, in his so-called translation of the so-called golden tablets, he says that God said that that darkness of skin was the mark of Cain. You know, in the, in the Bible, after Cain killed Abel, God put his mark on him and Cain was expelled. And the, and the Mormons believe, I believe to this day, I mean, it was just up until the 1980s or thereabouts that black people could not even become Mormons and or at least priests in the Mormon church, which is something that every man becomes. Um, and it was because of that whole Mark of Cain thing. And, and, and that, was, that was not unique. I mean, that was not something Joseph Smith just came up with. You had slave owners preaching that back in the 1600s, 1700s. Right. And here's the kicker to it. The basis of it is when you go back into the Old Testament, you see that Pharaoh looked around, and Pharaoh was displeased because the Hebrews were outbirthing the Egyptians. So in other words, darker-skinned races were outbirthing white, lighter-skinned races, which is the reason for the abortion situation right now. That's why they're going so hard in on abortion, because they have a lower birth rate. Well, Pharaoh started killing Hebrews. 5,000 years ago, those were black and brown people. This is very old. It's all about race, and it always has been. Victoria, thank you for the call. 
You know, Louise and I just got back from Mexico, and uh, we took a week's vacation uh, with my brother and his family, but it was also a week that I could finish up writing this, this book on voting that I've been working on. And while we were there, uh, my brother-in-law, or my brother and sister-in-law rented a house that we all shared, and it, it, it had, you know, a, a Wi-Fi that was kind of public Wi-Fi. And, uh, you know, going to town, there's public Wi-Fi. At the airport, there's public Wi-Fi. Pretty much everywhere I was, I didn't know, you know, whether it was secure or not, but I was not concerned because Louise and I both use ExpressVPN. I have it on my iPhone. I have it on my computer. I, she, Louise has it on her laptop. I have it on my laptop. Uh, she has it on her iPad. Uh, ExpressVPN, it's one click. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing. In fact, when we were in Mexico, uh, if it, you know, it, it would have looked to any website pretty much like we were in the United States because the ExpressVPN uh, apparently was just dropping our data and, you know, encrypted from where we were in Mexico right into the United States, you know, into a main pipeline and uh, completely safe, completely secure. Uh, with Ex ExpressVPN, I can surf any Wi-Fi without worrying about my personal data being stolen. And it's less than seven bucks a month. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same protection that Louise and I have. And ExpressVPN has been rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. You can protect your online activity now and get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. This is a product. I love endorsing this product. I actually use it. ExpressVPN is something you should have. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, to learn more. And thanks for supporting our program. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Donald Trump and the Republicans literally have nothing to run on unless you're talking to very wealthy people. Right. I mean, like they screwed truckers. They screwed they, they screwed everybody. They screwed anybody who lives in a, in a blue state. You know, we're today's tax day. We're all discovering this, that we got screwed by Donald Trump. If you make less than a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, you got screwed, too. In all probability, about 10 million of us saw our taxes go up as a result of Trump's tax scam. I mean, federal taxes. Right. And of course, in those states where you can't deduct state taxes now, it's even worse. But basically, they've got nothing. I mean, all Trump has to run on, you know, the only things that he's done is he's put children in cages. He's exacerbated the crisis at the border. He's he's snuggled up really tight and close with with, uh, you know, a few authoritarians, Duterte, Putin, Xi, uh, Kim. He's like, oh, these are my friends. Uh, what's his name in uh, Saudi Arabia? Mohammed bin Salman, the guy who's running Turkey. And he's dissed our Democratic allies, small d Democratic allies. You know, France, Germany, the UK. He's just like, he doesn't care. So he literally has nothing to run on. He has nothing to run on in terms of making America great. He has nothing to run on in terms of making America, once again, a leader in the world in terms of the values and goals that we espouse that are built into our early documents. He has nothing to run on based on what he has done for average working people. In fact, it's going the other direction. The uh, Honest to God, I'm not making this up. The new plan out of this administration is to start monitoring the social media of disabled people. Why? 
because disabled people get federal benefits. They are entitled to Social Security disability insurance. And, the, and there's other benefits that may come along with that. They may be on food stamps. They may be on housing assistance. They may be, you know, there's other, there's other types of, of, of uh, you know, help and assistance that are available to disabled people. So if you're a disabled person and you put a picture of yourself smiling on social media, on Facebook, because we all try to portray ourselves the best we possibly can, right? Particularly on social media. I mean, that's kind of the rule of the game. Then the Trump administration wants to say, hey, wait a minute, you're, you're too happy. You don't look unhappy. You don't deserve these social security disabilities. I mean, literally, this is the kind of stuff they're up to. They got nothing to run on. So what is left? How does Trump turn out his base? How does he get people to vote for him? And how do they get people to vote for Republicans? Well, it's really simple. Hate. Hate and fear. This is what they've got. Hate and fear will motivate people. George W. Bush used it after 9-11. Hate and fear of the Muslims. Donald Trump is using it. Hate and fear of the Muslims. Who are the Muslims? Well, it's Ilhan Omar. Oh my God, we've got a woman. She's a Somali refugee. She's from Minnesota. Democrat, blue state. She's a Democrat. She's a Muslim. And she is outspoken. And she's a progressive. Oh my God. So let's demonize her. Let's vilify her. So the question, what do we do when Donald Trump is stoking the flames of violence against Muslims or against any group or any individual? What would you do if you were the person that Donald Trump had pinned to the top of his Twitter feed? Basically an invitation to any right wing armed crazy in the country to come kill you. When the President of the United States is stoking violence. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. What should be our response as a society when he's claiming Christianity and he's stoking violence? And, and frankly, what should Ilhan Omar do? Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind? Hey, not too much, Tom. I want to try to answer the question about Mike Pence's Christianity from my perspective. Sure. Like I said before, I'm a Schopenhauer atheist, so I really only look at these things through academic lens. And I think we'll do ourselves a disservice if we don't recognize the type of Christian Mike Pence is and m many others, most. I would say the majority of Christians in America right now adhere to affirmative or positive Christianity, which is really a form of uh, political Christianity. And I don't know, you know what that means, affirmative or positive yeah. Christianity. Yeah, I know. I don't like using the term. All right, you say Calvinist, and I agree with you, Tom. I agree with you. Or Neo-Calvinist. Yeah, yeah Neo-Calvinism, I have no disagreement with that. However, the phenomenon academically, post-Calvin, is positive Christianity. We saw it rise in Europe in the 1930s, and in America, too, for that matter. That's what we're going through in America right now. Like, okay, the arsenal of democracy. Is that a, um, did that come out of taxpayers, you know, funding industrial research into the military? Or is the arsenal of democracy a blessing from Jesus? What's, Dave, what's the principal belief that characterizes what you're calling positive Christianity? Positive Christianity is the power, power in any form, economic, uh, political. So it's Christianity it's that can flex its muscles. Right. It is a blessing. It is a blessing. And if you're not powerful, you're not wealthy, you don't have a voice, well, you have uh, led a sinful life. There is something going on. And, um, right. you know, God's and, not happy but, with so, you. So, so, no. And it's really, really simple. Remember the old adage, uh, these doors are open all the time. 
right. where, where Christianity in America started faltering recently and why they're, they're contributing to anime like we did, you know, I discussed before. The thing now is these doors are open 80% of the time. 20% of the time, the clerics are on executive time. And that seems so, so, so minor, but it's huge. Because what that is doing is it's causing Christians to become not really interested anymore. Uh, the Christianity is only, the temple is only for social gatherings and, and material things. It's only for material things. And it's caused a really bad problem. And I think this is what Mike Pence believes in. He believes in um, just material reward. Hmm. And, um, you know, like I said, he power is a means unto itself. I mean, there's nothing that they will stop at. I mean, right. there's nothing. Like, no, and they're, I they're, worry about... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, they're, they're changing our laws, they're changing our policies, they're changing our social norms, and they're certainly changing many of the churches, although there are many churches that are pushing back. But I, I don't think that most Christians subscribe to this. I, you know, I, I think most Christians are just kind of on the sidelines, you know, occasionally going to church. Most Christians don't go to church, actually. David in Miami. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Hello. Thank you, Professor. Just to remind you, the money changers in the temple were about exchanging unkosher money, et cetera, for kosher money, all the purification of the temple. Oh, that's interesting. I did not, I did not get that distinction. I thought that they were, they were selling small animals for sacrifice. That might have been part of it, but again, the whole pure, impure, why women weren't allowed in the temple. Right. Also, however, on the flip side, Jesus was for taxation because render unto Caesars, that which is Caesars. Right. So if so, these alleged conservatives that hate taxation, then they have to be anti-Jesus, transitive property. <laughs> um, okay. Also, keep in mind, there's about three right-wing stations here in South Florida, uh, AM, of course, and at Barely, maybe a couple hours of sort of left wing on an urban music station. So we need to figure out how to fight it out. Yes, the younger people have the smartphones, but you still have to reach out to the older people, the the one time new dealers, who you know who remember, but their access is missing, especially ones whose uh, uh, you know cable TV yeah. doesn't include you, professor. Yeah, or more. So thank, uh, you. The, the, thank you, David. Actually, I would say more would be the not the new dealers because they're pretty much all dead or very old, but uh, the great society or people who remember, you know, Jack Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. Pete Buttigieg announced that he was running for president, and he, he gave a great speech from South Bend. I was so blown away by the speech, oh, you know, because it basically, it, part of it was basically he picked up that article that I wrote about three or four weeks ago saying, you know, when Republicans talk about freedom, here's what they're talking about, the freedom to die like a dog in the gutter. But actual freedom means things like having health care and having rights and, and, and stuff like that. That's real freedom. It is the anniversary of the death of Franklin Roosevelt. And just a few months before he died, he gave a speech suggesting that we should have a second Bill of Rights, and that these rights should be enshrined literally in our Constitution. This should be how things, the basis for all laws, right? So if you say you have a right to an education, then you can't mess with education. If you have a right to health care, then you can't hold that back from people. And I mean, he was literally calling for us to rewrite the Constitution with the second Bill of Rights. Here he is. This is a two-minute clip of Franklin Roosevelt talking about this. In our day, 
certain economic proofs have become accepted as self-evident. A second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living, the right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom, freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. Monopoly. The right of every family to a decent home, the right to adequate medical care, and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health, the right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accidents, and unemployment, the right to a good education. All of these rights spell security, and after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. Amen. Amen. And, you know, the right to a job. And that's what he did in the New Deal. If you couldn't find a job, the government would hire you. It would provide a job to you. There were a lot of things that needed to be done, and there still are, right? The $3 trillion worth of infrastructure that needs repairing right now. The right to a job, the right to health care, the right to education, the right to housing. No more homelessness. You know, we have actually more empty houses in the United States that are owned by investors than we have homeless people. Let that one sink in. So anyhow, this is, you know, a great opportunity. And, you know, when people say, well, do you believe in capitalism? You say, well, what kind? Regulated or unregulated? And that starts that conversation. You know, do you believe in the, you know, fill in the blank? Well, no, I'm a, you know, what kind of Democrat are you? I'm, are you a socialist? No, I'm a Roosevelt Democrat. And he was echoing those themes, and I was really pleased by it. And so I went to Twitter and I said, you know, I'd vote for Pete Buttigieg in a heartbeat. Of course, I would vote for any Democrat in a heartbeat, generally speaking. I was not speaking about the primary. That was not an endorsement. Right now, in my mind, I'm most fond of the, of the agendas that are being put forward by Bernie Sanders and by Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, Buttigieg's agenda is not quite there, but... You know, we'll see how this all shakes out. But it's fascinating seeing all this stuff coming forward. So, anyhow, Chris in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Chris, thanks for listening to X-Ray FM. What's on your mind? Modern Christianity, or at least like the, the perverse form of modern Christianity, is based on basically the authoritarian father. This is like the, I guess, the vengeful, maybe like Old Testament God. But remember, you kind of had this like running theme about how it was basically patriarchy and misogyny is what formed, you know, yeah. modern Christianity. Yeah. 
No, it's real and it's all there and you're absolutely right. And that is their shtick. And in fact, some of these people will even tell you that they that they derive more of their juice from the Old Testament than the New Testament. They're not they're not all down with that whole Jesus, you know, touchy-feely, we love everybody kind of liberalism. They would much rather have the angry God, you know, throwing lightning bolts from the sky and, and threatening all of us. Uh, Chris, excellent points. Thank you very much for making them. Irene in New York City. Hey, Irene, what's up? Hey, Tom. Nice to talk to you again. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I just want to jump in here. I spent years and years in Catholic school, 12 years in Catholic school, mm-hmm. and some Christians wouldn't think that makes me a Christian, but that's their problem. I believe that the organized churches very much today are about power and influence. They don't really care that much about love and compassion. They're not listening to Jesus. Jesus was very, he didn't say a lot. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's very, very simple. This is simple. If Christians would just say, okay, this is how I'm going to get up in the morning, I'm going to live my day this way. I'm not going to deprive people of their human rights. I'm not going to make them suffer for their human rights and make them feel like second-class citizens because they're homosexuals, LGBTQ, you know. And I got out of church. I am, I am a, I guess I'm an agnostic now, mm. because I found religion very destructive. The older I got, I found it destructive. But I cling to the words of Jesus as best I can in my own personal life. Do unto others as I would want people to do unto me. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little upset about this, because this means a lot to me. Yeah, no, I, 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 I just wanted to, you know, all this power stuff in the churches, it's business. They yeah. want power. And they want to maintain their tax exemptions while they still engage in the political world. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. This is huge. In fact, the big thing that got Donald Trump the evangelical vote was his saying that he was going to repeal the Johnson Amendment, you know, which was passed in the 1950s by, you know, by Lyndon Johnson when he was in the Senate, which says that if your church engages in political activity, you lose your tax exempt status. And, you know, churches have been flaunting this for years now. But, uh, you know, Trump said he was going to repeal it. He hasn't. He hasn't put any effort into it at all. But they, they know that he's on their side. Irene, thank you for the call. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. One of our sponsors is the X Chair. And I got to tell you, they've got this new thing, Dynamic Variable Lumbar Support. They're called DVL. The X Chair's DVL is really designed to adjust for you. I mean, you know, the average chair, maybe it goes up and down, right? This thing really is totally customizable. Whether you're 5'2 and 110 pounds or 6'4 and 250, the X Chair actually will adapt itself to you. And now with the introduction of the X Basic model, there's an X Chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of the X Chair's new financing option too. Pay as little as 30 bucks a month to take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. And X-Chair is also on sale now for $100 off. So just go to xchairtom, T-H-O-M, xchairtom.com, xchairtom, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. And if you use the code XWHEELS over at xchairtom.com now, you'll also receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. That's xchairtom, T-H-O-M, xchairtom.com. Hi, it's Tom Hartman Book Club, and today we're reading from What Would Jefferson Do? And this is from the chapter Warlords, Theocrats, and Aristocrats Rise Again, the subchapter Theocrats Attack Democracy. And the uh, epigraph that we started the chapter with is from uh, President Abraham Lincoln. 
where he said, I am approached with the most opposite opinions and advice and by men who are equally certain that they represent the divine will. I hope it will not be irreverent of me to say that if it is probable that God would reveal his will on such a point so connected with my duty, it might be supposed he would reveal it directly to me. Uh, the subhead of the chapter, America is a Christian nation. No, it's a nation where a lot of Christians live. And I read about Judge Moore and his Ten Commandments thing and his statement that you know America was founded in Christianity and, and then proceed to share the founder's actual view on this. Our founders were both well-schooled in the history of the Crusades and knew from first-hand experience with Puritanism how oppressive religious men could be even with small amounts of political power. Ben Franklin fled Boston when he was a teenager in part to escape the oppressive environment created by politically powerful preachers. And for the rest of his life, he was openly hostile to the idea of a secular power being wielded by those who hold also religious power. Although he was fascinated by the spiritual experience, Franklin had little use for the organized religions of his day. In his autobiographical Toward the Mystery, he wrote, quote, I have found Christian dogma unintelligible. Early in life, I absented myself from Christian assemblies, end quote. In his autobiography, Franklin talks about how he came to this way of thinking, quote, My parents had early given me religious impressions and brought me through my childhood piously in the Puritan way. But I was scarce 15 when, after doubting by turns of several points, as I found them disputed in the different books I read, I began to doubt of revelation itself. Some books against deism fell into my hands. They were said to be the substance of sermons preached at Boyle's lectures. It happened that they wrought an effect on me quite contrary to what was intended by them. For the arguments of the deists, which were quoted to be refuted, appeared to me much stronger than the refutations, and I soon became a thorough deist." End of quote. Franklin, like most of the more well-known founders, was a deist, subscribing to a philosophy made popular by Unitarians who held that the Creator made the universe long ago and has since chosen not to interfere in any way, that neither Jesus nor anybody else was divine, or alternatively, that we are all divine, and that there is only one God and not three. Another founding deist who resisted giving political power to those with religious power was George Washington. Jefferson's diary entry for February 1st, 1799 reads, quote, When the clergy addressed General Washington on his departure from the government, it was observed in their consultation that he had never, on any occasion, said a word to the public which showed a belief in the Christian religion. And they thought that they should so pen their address as to force him at length to declare fidelity whether he was a Christian or not. They did so. However, Jefferson noted, the old fox was too cunning for them. He answered every article of their address, particularly except that which he passed over without even notice. Jefferson concluded that Washington, quote, never did say a word on the subject in any of his public papers, and that Governor Morris, a close friend of Washington's, has often told me that General Washington believed no more in that Christian system than he himself did, than Governor Morris did, end of quote, from Jefferson. In fact, President George Washington supervised the language of a treaty with African Muslims that explicitly stated that the United States was a secular nation. The treaty with Tripoli worked out under Washington's guidance and then signed into law the next year by John Adams in 1797 reads, quote, As the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity against the law's religion or tranquility of Muslims, and as the said states never have entered into any war or act of hostility against any uh, Muslim nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions 
shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries, end of quote. But for the founders, this wasn't just an issue of being Christian or not. They didn't want any organized religion mixing its functions with government. For example, on February 21st, 1811, President James Madison vetoed a bill passed by Congress that authorized government payments to a church in Washington, D.C. to help the poor. Faith-based initiatives were a clear violation, in Madison's mind, of the First Amendment doctrine of separation of church and state and could lead to a dangerous transfer of political power to religious leaders. Caring for the poor was a public and civic duty, a function of government, and should not be allowed to become a hole through which churches could reach and seize political power or the taxpayer's purse. Funding a church to provide for the poor would establish, in Madison's words, a legal agency, a legal precedent that would break down the walls of separation the founders had put between church and states to protect Americans from religious zealots gaining political power. Thus, Madison said in his veto message to Congress, He was striking down the proposed law because it helped a church to, quote, provide for the support of the poor and the education of poor children of the same, which, Madison warned, would be a precedent for giving to religious societies. That would be giving federal funds. Now, uh, things have certainly changed since then with the faith-based initiative program that started under Reagan has now exploded. But anyhow, the book is What Would Jefferson Do? Sam in Stockbridge, Georgia. Hey, Sam, what's on your mind? Yeah, I wanted to talk about Mayor P because um, what do you think about him and also his idea of tackling going against the religious right, which I think he wants to have form of religious left, which I think, because the way he speaks the past three weeks, he impressed me a lot. Yeah. Yeah, he impressed me a lot, too. You know, his, his policies are not totally progressive, in quotes, but on the other hand, they may be the things that you know, we need to use to get there. And, and God only knows where everybody's going to end up policy-wise. You know, people are taking positions now that they wouldn't have taken, you know, three years ago, five years ago, in fact, the entire Democratic Party. So, you know, we'll see. But uh, you're, you're of the opinion that he's the guy who can stop the religious right. Is that the bottom line here? Yeah, I think him, probably Bernie, Elizabeth Warren as well, because also yeah. he's also taking hits from, like, conservatives and, like, these preachers, like, Franklin Graham about him not being a Christian. Yeah. With Mayor Pete, it gets real personal because they're saying basically that he can't be a Christian because he's gay. And that's like, that's as bad as, that's as, that's evil. I mean, you know, that's the kind of stuff that's coming out of the religious right. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul. My topic is reclaiming Christianity is vitally important to the agenda of, of those of us on the progressive, liberal, left, whatever you want to call it which has been rejected uh, or abdicated, let's say, over the last 40 years or so, going on 50 years. Uh, I think not for... I understand why, and I'll get to that in a minute, but um, it, it is like any literature professor, liberal or conservative, would acknowledge that the Bible is the most important anthology of literature in, the West, in Western civilization. So you have to be as familiar with it and rejecting it would be like rejecting the Constitution. I don't want to read it because right. what's what's now being what's happening is the conservatives and I, I don't even know what to call these people. They're not conservatives. Uh, the, the the Trump movement. They're they're using it as a as a a weapon. They're weaponizing the Bible to pervert the Constitution. Uh, there was an interesting survey done by the National Association of Churches about two years ago. 
And the results of the survey they found were very disturbing for churches because what they found is that young people, this is, uh, I guess, under the age of 40, 35, something like that, they, they think of, of Christianity in America as two things. Number one, being mostly about what it's against. And secondly, that it's a, essentially a political brand. Hmm. And how this happened was, believe it or not, in the 1970s, you see, the war on Christianity, Tom, is by the evangelical right. That's who the war on Christianity. The war sure. on traditional Christianity is by the evangelical right. And no surprise, you'll know that this was started in the 1970s by the Koch brother-funded televangelist movement. And they that were, in, in many cases, they were pushing, in the, in the early 70s anyway, they were pushing back the, the, against the Father Berrigans of the world. I mean, you know, Christianity was, was one of the rallying cries of the anti-war movement in, in, during the Vietnam War. Right, and the, the, it was the televangelist movement that drove all the denominational churches off the air. The, the, You're right. So back Irene in the, back in the 50s and 60s, the, the, the church that was on, the, you know, you would see religious programming every Sunday, and it was from the local church being broadcast by your local TV station. Right. And, and the, the denominational churches at the time were primarily filled with what we would call uh, with, with Democrats. Yeah. The, 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 the denominational churches, what your uh, previous caller, Irene, was talking about, and I understand her dismay because she was raised a Catholic and the churches. The churches can be influenced by who's in them, just like your, your local precincts, you know, your local Democratic precincts are influenced by who goes there. Right. And so what's happened is that the right-wing movement is, while they, they, they like to say this, they'll read, they say the Bible is inerrant, and they read that, you know, at, uh, sort of the same originalist approach as they say the Constitution's, but they use, the, they then read the Bible and just, high-level degree of abstraction to make it sound, say what they want. You know, or or they, they cherry-pick the pieces out of it that echo their, their particular prejudices and sentiments. Correct. And so, for instance, uh, you know, there was a discussion. If you get familiar with it, I, it's, we don't have time for it, but I, I have been, in about the last 15 years, become a really interested and a, practically a scholar of the Bible in, in many ways, uh, just because I, I, I had to you know, so many bad things happened in my life. I thought I'll just turn to this if it really is the word of God. Let me, let me read it. So I thought, well, it's a good idea. But for instance, I hear people talk about um, you know anti-LGBTQ, and I will tell them there's not a single discussion in the New Testament about homosexuality. Not one, nowhere. Right, and there's only one or two references in the entire Old Testament, well, and and they're buried see, among you, 600 other laws. And not to get into the, too academic, but in when you read it in Greek, that's not what it's talking about. Mm. The, the concept of homosexuality, that is, uh, natural attraction between two people of the same gender, didn't didn't appear until the 1860s. So what the what the Bible is referring to uh, is not uh, homosexuality. It's referring to a different con- something different. Yeah, it's a little bit subtle. When you read the Bible in Greek, it's a lot. It's like reading. It's like looking at a movie in Technicolor. Everything comes out that are, are subtle uh, understandings that you need to have. But for instance, I mean, if you people say, "What about Sodom and Gomorrah?" Well, you know what? You can look at Ezekiel sixteen forty-eight, and he'll see, tells you what the sins of Sodom are, and nothing about sex. Right. Essentially, it's the seven deadly sins. That was greed. Was the big one, wasn't it? What's up, sorry? Wasn't greed the big one? Yeah, yeah, well, the seven deadly sins were, they're listed right there. 
Yeah. But what was Sodom and Gomorrah was about rape. Rape is not rape is not homosexuality. That's right. rape is rape, no matter yep. who's doing it. Yep. So that, that's what the, the thing. And then somebody will point to, oh, well, what about Romans chapter one twenty four through twenty seven? It says, said no, he's going back to he's talking about porneia. Porneia in the Greek is any kind of. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, twisted, perverted things that heterosexuals can do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it's like. That's the thing. If you get familiar with it, you have to be able to talk about it, and to abdicate it is just leaving it to is leaving it essentially to Satan. You're leaving the most important literature of of Western civilization to Satan if you don't choose it, pick it up for yourself. That's right. my point. And, then, and in this case, uh, the the Satan has become essentially these multimillionaire children of multimillionaire evangelicals. You know, Franklin Graham, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, you know, among others. I mean, there's a whole collection of them. And some of them aren't literally the genetic heirs of another person, but there's, you know, the church has been kind of passed along and the empire has been expanded. And at the core of it all is well, you greed. Know, I got away from Christianity for the most part because of my evangelical older brother. And I just thought, if that's what Christianity is, I, see, I was raised in the Lutheran Church, we all were, but I thought, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. And then I finally met two women who don't know each other, but they're, they're devout Democrats, liberals, who are both also devout Christians. And they, they got it across to me that said, Paul, you can be your own Christian. Right. You don't have to be there. You don't have to measure up to them, to right. their standard. It's tribalism, basically. It's another form of tribalism. It's another form of identity. And now, in fact, there's the, the whole Christian identity movement. Paul, thank you. Thank you for your uh, insights, your comments, and your personal stories. I appreciate it. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Today in our book club, we're reading from Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove with a foreword by the Reverend William Barber II. This is from page 61. The chapter is Living in Skin and the subtitle is American Slavery and the Problem of Bodies. America's original sin of race-based slavery is rooted in our bodies. While most of us will do what we can to save our own skin, our bodies bear the curse of human rebellion sweat of the brow and the pains of labor. The sins of our fathers and mothers bear down on bent backs and sciatic nerves. Slavery has always been one means humans employ to skirt this curse. To the victor belong the spoils is an ancient truism of war. Often in human history, the spoils include people. 
But war is not the only way some bodies become subject to others. In the opening lines of the Exodus story, the Bible says, quote, a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt, end quote. In the messiness of politics, favor comes and goes. But the people who are in power almost always make sure someone else carries the weight and does the dirty work. The unique contribution of slavery during the establishment of the American colonies was the employment of skin color to assign a class of people to perpetual servitude. Originally, white and black people came to the colonies as servants of the settler class, but race-based slavery emerged as an efficient means of building up the plantation economy by permanently assigning people of African descent to the status of slave. Africans who survived the long journey across the Atlantic Ocean, often chained to one another and packed prostrate in the hold of a ship, became human chattel in the New World. In explicit contrast to the enslavable black flesh of Africans, people of European descent began to imagine themselves as white. By virtue of their whiteness, and for no other reason, they imagined a divine right to own black bodies. For the people whose saleable skin rendered them subject to use and abuse, this arrangement was obviously anathema. Quote, and before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free, end quote, they sang when white folks weren't listening. Tactics of resistance varied, but people of African descent always knew in their bodies the basic heresy of race-based slavery. And in their bodies, white people knew it too. To comprehend the moral contradiction of America's original sin, you must consider what it meant for a young white man to come of age on a plantation. Imagine yourself growing up amid a pastoral landscape in the early 19th century, a half-day's horse ride from the closest city. As for any child, your world is the people you've known and the places familiar to you since birth, the big house which you've always called home, and the barn where your daddy tied a rope swing from the rafters so you could fly down from the loft and land safely in that mound of hay by the horse stalls. For as long as you can remember, you've always had your studies and your chores to do. Mother always insisted that you learn responsibility, but you always felt closer to Betsy, the enslaved black woman who changed your diapers and cooked your food and picked you up when you fell and skinned your knees. You never remember running down to the barn to play without Betsy's two boys and Imogen, the girl between them, the one that was born just three months after you. For you, a son of so-called privilege, puberty means beginning to make sense of why you kissed Imogen down in the hay pile when you were six and why you both always knew you could never tell a soul. It means coming to terms with the fact that you and Imogen both share your father's nose, and it means beginning to internalize an arrangement in which you will one day inherit as property the woman who both competed with your mother for your father's love and nursed you at her breast. If you were a good Episcopalian, as most plantation families were, this is also about the time you would be confirmed as a living member of the body of Jesus Christ. The Southern writer Lillian Smith wrote a century after slavery's end, now at one's feet there are chasms that had been invisible until this moment. Describing an experience shared in silence by generations of white Christians, she observed how, quote, one knows and never remembers how it was learned, that there will always be chasms, and now across the chasms will always be those one loves, end quote. To observe that race-based chattel slavery was a gut-wrenching experience that white people also experienced in their bodies is not in any way to equate their suffering with that of African Americans. It is instead to try to understand the lived experience that informs the ways they read the Bible and imagined their world. Because even though slavery ended in 1865 in the United States, most white Christians went on reading the Bible and seeing the world around them exactly as they had before. Growing up Southern Baptist in North Carolina, 
I memorized scripture in the King James Version and engaged in a serious program of discipleship as a white adolescent without ever giving serious consideration to the Southern in our denomination's name. Then in 1995, the summer before my freshman year of high school, the Southern Baptist Convention issued an official apology for its endorsement of slavery. There it was. We'd separated ourselves from our American Baptist sisters and brothers some 150 years earlier in order to stay Southern and keep our slaves. Enough water had passed under the bridge for our elders to decide it was time to bury the hatchet. They said they were sorry. But their concession stirred up old fears. Before I'd finished high school, a conservative movement within the denomination insisted we had become too liberal, took over the denomination, and forced everyone who worked for the International Mission Board to sign a statement of faith to which they added an article about female submission. It was the first time in my life I'd seen people on the local evening news being interviewed about my church. The book, Reconstructing the Gospel. Linda in Auburn, Washington. Hey, Linda, what's on your mind? Hi. Um, I got in the queue to talk because I wanted to um, try to correct one, the first thing you said that I felt was inaccurate, and now you, there's one more thing. Um, the first one was, it sounded like you said that the that Christianity wasn't really integral to what the founders' thinking was and the history of our nation? Is that what you said? That's absolutely true. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian. He was a deist. In fact, he went through the Christian Bible, or at least the four Gospels, and he cut out all the miracles. And that, that Jefferson Bible is still in print. So, number one, in fact, he put nature's God into the Constitution. John Adams, who was a Christian, scratched that out and put the Christian God. Je Jefferson then scratched it back out again. He was joined in writing the Declaration by John Adams, who was a Christian, and, and by Ben Franklin, who was also not a Christian. Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were both deists. They believed that, that some entity created the universe, threw it into being, and then just stepped back. And that what we need to figure out are natural laws, not you know, what God wants of us. And I mean, Thomas Paine, the guy who wrote, uh, you know, uh, uh, Common Sense, the, the pamphlet that kicked off the American Revolution. You know, these are the times that try men's souls, a summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will now no doubt shrink from the service of his country. But tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Thomas Paine wrote the book. It's, it's called, um, uh, oh, geez. Um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it right now, but, but Thomas Paine's most famous book, or his second most famous book, arguably, um, was a defense of, of uh, atheism. And, you know, uh, so, yeah, many of the founders were not Christians, and, the, and, the, and those who were Christians, by the way, uh, the majority of them were either, you know, uh, uh, various forms of Southern Christianity. There were no, I, I don't believe there were any Catholics in, the, in, the, uh, in 1787 in writing the Constitution. And um, they were all, with the exception of the, of the delegation from Massachusetts, they were all very wary of Massachusetts because Massachusetts had been contaminated by the Puritans and had all these laws that, you know, if you didn't go to church, you got fined, you had to pay a tax to support the churches. Um, uh, you could go to jail if you weren't sufficiently church going to Massachusetts. And for that reason, one of the major debates in the ratifying conventions was whether Massachusetts should be allowed into the, into the Union. Because, because they had incorporated religion into their laws. So, yeah, Linda, the, the founders were not only, many of them were not Christians, A, and B, even those who were Christians were very worried about their fellow Christians, the Puritans from Massachusetts, 
uh, taking charge, and they didn't want. They did not want, and that's why the, the twice in the Constitution, in the Establishment Clause, it says that there shall be no establishment of religion and no religious test for for uh, serving in any any elected office in the United States or any office. And and secondly, yeah, the, yeah. The, the First Amendment says that we have absolute freedom of religion and from religion. Linda, thank you for the call, though. Um, Russ in Portland. Hey, Russ, what's up? Tom, are you familiar with the works of a, a man I consider to be one of the great observers of the American political scene uh, in the last uh, 25 years, uh, Kevin Phillips? Do you know about oh, him? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've read yeah. several of his books, actually. The coming Did Republican uh, majority was a big deal back in the late 60s, early 70s, well, I guess that, it was. That's, that's what brought him to the attention of people like you, was the, the book he wrote that was the blueprint for Richard Nixon's victory in 1968. Right. But in 2006, he wrote a book called American Theocracy. Yes, I'm familiar with it. In fact, I had him on the show. We discussed it. Really? Yeah. When was that? Oh, it was around the time the book came out. Yeah, 2006. Is yeah, it was around 10 out. years ago. Yeah, well, it was a little more than 10 years ago. Yeah, we've been doing the show for 15 years. I've, I've interviewed Kevin Phillips a couple of times. It's been a long time since I've talked to him, he, but he he very insightful guy. So make yeah. your point real quick, Russ, because we're hitting the end of the hour. Well, on the cover of the book is a megachurch with a big American flag behind the choir, and it put me in mind of what I think Sinclair Lewis said, that when fascism comes to America, it will come carrying a cross wrapped in the flag. Yep. And Amen. Obi in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Hey, Obi, what's up? Hey, Tom, this is Abi in La Crosse. Abi, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Hey, it took you a while to say Olathe, so I'll, 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 I'll get Anyway. Linking back to what you started the program with about the right-wing Christians, the fundamentalists, mm -hmm. the, what I call the authoritarian Christians, because they're not really Christians at all. They base their authoritarianism on rants from the Old Testament, yep. and at, at the closest they get to Jesus is epistles from St. Paul who never met Jesus. They're never quoting the Gospels with, to back up their authoritarianism. Yes. But my main point is that if the Messiah were walking the earth today, they would be leading the charge to crucify her. To crucify who? If 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 the 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 right wing Christians, the fundamental or so called Christians, the fundamentalists, they would be leading the charge to crucify the Messiah if that person were walking the earth. Today. Oh, I see. I see. You, you're you're uh, envisioning a future Messiah who is a woman as opposed to the last one who was a man. Yeah. Yeah. Or or if Jesus <laughs> cool. came back, yeah. you know, they all they all keep waiting for him to come back, you know. But yeah, who knows what form Jesus could come back in? Yeah. And and if that person were walking walking the earth today, they'd be leading the charge to crucify that person. Yeah, I think I think the way to take these guys on is just by posing questions to them. You know, who would Jesus discriminate against? Who would Jesus refuse housing to? Who would Jesus take food stamps away from you know who would jesus take the children away from and put in cages point them to the sermon on the mountain say where does it say that in there yeah in matthew 25 i mean the sermon on the mountain matthew 25 in my mind are, encompass christianity and uh, you know i think they're the, the two most important parts of uh, the teachings of, of jesus and and these guys these franklin grahams the, the donald trumps the jerry falwell juniors of the world yeah, the Mike Pence's of the world do not encompass any of that. Abby, I got to run. Thanks a lot for the call. And uh, good talking to you. And thank you for helping me with your name. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow.
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 